Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. And regardless of whether you're listening live or to the archive of the show, I'm confident you'll be glad you joined us as well. For those in the U.S., I'd like to wish you a happy and safe Memorial Day. Now, given it's a holiday, there's a very good chance your family is home with you, in which case you should be turning up the speakers and gathering them around the radio players so that you have more family time and gain some knowledge together. Isn't there even a saying that a family that listens together stays together? Or maybe it's something like that. And if you're a new listener, I should let you know that we do... um, have a double money-back guarantee. If you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we'll refund double what you paid to listen. We haven't given out a cent yet. During the show, we'll be focusing on the web of debt, and, and maybe this should be part of your family discussion later today. We certainly realize the majority of governments around the world are trapped in a web of debt, but is your family also trapped in one? If so, then today's a good time to analyze that debt you have. Is it all good debt that allows you to own more IGAs? And I'll remind you that IGA stands for Income Generating Assets. Or is there also some bad debt that you should be trying to eliminate? We've talked about these concepts in prior shows, certainly during our shows on OPM. And again, I'll remind you that OPM stands for Other People's Money. It has nothing to do with the addictive drug opium. Now, if it turns out OPM also is addictive, I think it'll be vindicated as a very positive wealth-building addiction as long as you're investing that money wisely, which means you're investing, your investments are earning more than your debt is costing you. This past week, I looked through the archive of past shows and noticed we had not done a show on the five parts of a balance sheet yet. That show will provide a great vehicle for explaining this concept of good and bad debt. That show will be a follow-up to the show we did entitled Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Revisit It, where we gave some updates to what could have been covered in that book. Today is May 26th, 2014. It is 9.02 a.m. in Arizona and the West Coast, where our guest is, and 18.02 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Your local time may change when your clocks do, but the show time doesn't. 
I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows, like the half dozen or so I already mentioned, or if you want to re-listen to them, you can find them on the archive. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive. Now, our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. The U.S. equity markets, after another week reaching a record high, are off to a positive start. Asia was up overnight. Europe just ended up, and Brazil is flat. So again, everybody's optimistic today. The advantage of joining us for the live show is that you get to ask questions or make comments. Now, you can either use the chat window below the radio player if you're coming in through the Internet. Now, if you're... Uh, listening to the uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, chat window I mentioned, but I didn't mention, you can also call in. There is a call-in number at the top of the screen, and I'll tell you that number very shortly. But if you're listening to the archive, neither calling in nor the chat window will work. Now, on the other hand, if you listen to the archive of the show, especially 10 or 20 years from now, you'll have some history to see how our guest and the predictions and thoughts she made and, 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 and ideas she's proposing, how they work out. Our guest today to discuss this web of debt is Ellen H. Brown. She's an attorney, founder of the Public Banking Institute, a prolific author and candidate for the Office of Treasurer of California. Now, I mentioned she's a prolific author, and if you don't already know, she's the author of a book titled Web of Debt, and a recent sequel, The Public Bank Solution. Now, in addition, she's written 10 other books and hundreds of articles. Now, in company like that, I guess I shouldn't admit that I have two books started and neither close to being finished. <laughs> Let's give Ellen Brown a warm radio welcome. Ellen, I'm so glad you're willing and able to join us today, and I understand you're traveling and have a very heavy speaking schedule today. Uh, thanks, Ron. Yep, I'm doing, um, I'm running for treasurer of the state of California, so I've been running around speechifying. And staying a little bit busier, so you're not going to have time to write a book this week. Uh, not this week, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, do have, the, I have, do have a couple more cooked up in my head, though. They're always, oh boy. they're always up there fermenting. I gave a brief overview of background. How do you introduce yourself to a new group of people? Um, that's about it. I say I'm an author of Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, if we're talking about uh, money and finance, although <laughs> I've also written 10 books on health and the politics of health. And I'm an attorney by profession, but uh, my ex-husband then went into the Foreign Service for 11 years, so that gave me an opportunity to uh, write. So I wrote these many books. And uh, now I'm uh, founder of the Public Banking Institute, and that seems to be my, my main focus, how we could get public banks instituted. This is on the model of we have one in this country, that's the Bank of North Dakota, and North Dakota is the only state that escaped the credit crisis, sporting a budget surplus every year since 2008, in fact, every year since 2001, and um, has the lowest unemployment rate in the country, lowest credit card debt, et cetera. So. Okay. So it, it sounds like uh, it might be the right solution. Now, I, I know our listeners will want to know uh, more about the two books I mentioned earlier, and you just mentioned the Web of Debt and the Public Banking Solution. So I'd like you to focus on those today, starting with the Web of Debt. Is that okay? Sure. 
Okay, when did you write The Web of Debt? How long ago and um, kind of what inspired it? Um, it, the first edition was published in 2007, but I started mm-hmm. in about 2002, um, and it's gone through five editions. So it's in the fifth edition is 2012. It was inspired. Um, I had always been interested in writing on the Federal Reserve and where our money came from, and mm-hmm. but in my youth, when I tried to write on those things before the internet you couldn't really get to the end of your thought. You know, you would go into the library and the book wouldn't be there, or you just couldn't couldn't nail down these issues. But but then when like, we came back from the Foreign Service and there was this wealth of information that you could just pose a theory and it would pop up and somebody would have written on it. So, so I got quite excited about writing on this subject, but I still didn't know exactly what I could add until... I discovered that The Wizard of Oz was written as a monetary allegory in the 1890s. And, of course, mm. my, fir- my first love is just to write, to be a, you know, I always wanted to write mm-hmm. nonfiction like a novel. So that gave me a hook where I could I could d- put a, run a storyline through it and <clears throat> just run the history of m- the issuance of money, the creation of money in the U.S., you know, what the American colonies did. They had a very unique model where they actually printed their own money rather than borrowing somebody else's gold or borrowing Mm -hmm. somebody else's banknotes that were purportedly backed by gold but weren't. In other words, the trap of being indebted to the Bank of England. So that was a great model, which we followed for a while, but then with, with the birth of the new nation, we actually got back into being trapped into banks creating our money because at that point people were so afraid of paper money because it had actually it had hyperinflated during the during the uh, Revolutionary War, but it wasn't really for the reasons people thought. But that, those are all the things that I wrote about in that book. Mm-hmm. But one of the key points I want to go back to, and why, one of the reasons I asked the question of when you wrote it, 2007, and, and, and the importance of that is if you look at least at U.S. debt, and although it's true in, in lots of parts of the world, uh, that was just the point where U.S. debt was high. It wasn't astronomical yet. So uh, it's, it's, not, it, it's not a book that was written because you're seeing you know trillion dollars of additional uh, debt being created every year. It really was written even before the worst was starting to hit. So a uh, very, very important point for our listeners to understand when you wrote the book is 2007. So it was really talking about the concept, not triggered by uh, this, this massive printing recently. Yeah, but and I did um, predict the 2008 collapse, so it was considered prescient or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that, mm-hmm. that is okay. what I wrote about, that this was going to end ba- badly, and it did end badly quickly. Now, the title of the book could be applied to personal debt or, of course, to the government debt, uh, both of which it ballooned. Can you provide some insights on how people uh, can get trapped in their own personal web of debt and then can't escape? Can you you also share some uh, uh, highlights there? Well, particularly in that period, um, people had gotten trapped in the housing bubble, which was created by the banks. They drove up credit. They issued Mm -hmm. cheap credit. And we now know that those many of those mortgages were fraudulent. The whole, actually, the whole system was fraudulent. It was all based on securitization. So the banks weren't weren't 
it wasn't like in It's a Wonderful Life where Jimmy Stewart is sitting there following mm-hmm. your loan for 30 years. The banks were selling off their loans to investors, so they didn't care who they were making these loans to because they weren't going to be responsible. So they got into all the subprime, et cetera. But, um, so, so many people got trapped in that, of course, and I would say it wasn't the people's fault. It was the bank's fault, but the, it was the banks that got bailed out, and it was the people that wound up carrying the the load you know paying the paying the difference between what their what they paid what their mortgages said their property was worth and what what the property was really worth so that was one thing housing another thing is credit card debt many people think that by paying the minimum they've done it you know mm-hmm. that they, that's mm-hmm. okay well as long as i just pay the minimum every month i'm i'm doing okay but they they're not realizing that if you're ca- that you're carrying the rest of that debt at 18% or more um a debt at 20% doubles in 3 years so you're not paying off your debt your debt is actually going up and that's how people people just don't realize until somebody draws their attention to what's been happening to their credit card debt that they're actually getting mired in it by not paying off the balance. In other words, you shouldn't incur a debt that you can't pay off that month on your credit card. It's not a good practice to be to be funding stuff through your credit card if you're not going to be able to pay it off. If you can't pay it off, get if sure. it's a car, get a car loan, you know, at at a very low interest and see what interest you're getting, but don't do it on credit cards. And, and I can imagine if I could see our listeners, they're probably all nodding their head, going, "Yeah, we, we you know, we know that uh, you know, credit cards are a, a, is, is a no-win game." And yet, so many people don't seem to understand that. I guess they don't listen to the radio show. It's part of or the, they're desperate the and they've got the credit card, and so they pay with the credit card. Yeah, but I've seen, I've seen like they actually have. I, there was a TV program on young people who got trapped in debt that way, and they honestly just didn't realize what they had gotten into. They didn't know that that's the way their debts were mounting up until somebody showed it to them. And then the no, third thing and I, that mm-hmm, I think sure. is trapped, well, particularly young people, is student debt. Here we have these young students who don't really know what they're doing. Well, either they get locked in credit card debt or they get locked into these student loans and their mm-hmm. poor parents want their kids to have an education and so they guarantee the loans for them. Or, so the whole family is is locked in these horrible debts that they can't escape, even in bankruptcy. The 2005 Re- Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005 says that students can't file bankruptcy on their right. student debt. I had a young woman working for me just doing typing. She had two degrees, two master's degrees, and she was $200,000 in debt. And there was absolutely no way she was going to get out from under that debt. Her her boyfriend is supporting her, but he can't marry her because he's afraid to marry into this debt. So, and many people, I mean, I think the I think I read the average debt was something like twenty eight thousand dollars. It, I think that education should be free. Higher education should be just like high school education. We we owe that to our young people, and it could be free. I mean, the tuition could be free. It used to be free. I went to. Um, um, UC Berkeley in the 1960s when tuition actually was free. I went to UCLA Law School in the 70s when it was $700 a year for tuition. It's now $45,000 per year yep. for an in-state student at a state university. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. 
when there's a lot of money floating around, prices are easy to raise. Yeah, well, and they're raising them to cover these interest rate swaps that they should never have gotten into with Wall right, Street. Right. I mean, I I blame everything on Wall Street, and nowadays, it's that Wall Street bankers are the um, the boards of universities. I mean, they're no longer educators; they're now financiers. They're the people that got mm-hmm, us into mm-hmm. these interest rate swaps and other very bad deals. Okay. Given your background, I'm sure uh, listeners will want to learn a little bit about, uh, more about you. What are the best websites or website uh, to uh, to learn about you? My blog is at ellenbrown.com, and I have over 200 articles there on various banking and money-related mm-hmm. subjects. And then I've, I'm the founder of the Public Banking Institute, and that website is publicbankinginstitute.org. And that's all about if you want to encourage your legislators to fund a publicly owned or to to um, set up a publicly owned bank. You could have city-owned banks, county-owned banks, state-owned banks. Again, we just had that one model, the Bank of North Dakota, but it's mm-hmm. doing brilliantly well. I think we should all have them, and I definitely think California should have it, the ninth largest economy in the world. Okay. Let me let – me, um uh, oh, and one more with, in oh, case sure, you ahead, live. Uh, sure. Sorry, <laughs> if you live in California, um, <clears throat> my web campaign website is Ellen Brown for Treasure. dot org, and that's uh, four with the number four. Okay. Ah, okay. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I did, I would have missed that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Number four. That's that's good. Appreciate that. Uh, I want to stay on this personal debt for just a little bit longer, uh, especially with the student loan debt and the credit cards and kinds of things. I mean, besides encouraging everyone to listen to Wealthy and A radio regularly, what can we do on this personal debt front to avoid future generations making these same mistakes all over again? Well, I we need first of all. I mean, I think we need changes at the federal level. Are you talking about what can we do personally to avoid this? Well, no, no, as uh, overall policy-wise, uh, personally, all of those things. Federal-wide, we need to change the system. Uh, it, it is possible, and other countries have done it, to guarantee students jobs when they get out of school. Um, Elizabeth Warren brought a proposal that as long as the Federal Reserve is able to give 0.75% loans to banks, why can't they give that sort of loans to students? And then the objection was, well, banks are good credit risks and students are bad credit risks. But the banks would have been horrible credit risks if we hadn't bailed them out. I mean, they were literally bankrupt. They were terrible to credit risks. If we supported our students, in other words, if we guaranteed them a job when they got out of university, assuming they're qualified, but, you know, guaranteed that there were enough jobs to to give a job to everyone who qualifies for something, um, we, they would also be good credit risks. And that's been done, like, in New Zealand and Australia. Their their loan program is that the students don't owe anything unless and until they have a job, and the the state helps them find a job. <clears throat> so that can be done. So that they can pay some of that debt down. Well, but there seems also to be a very inexpensive solution, for example, to have more personal finance, or at least some taught in the school curriculum. When I went to school, the zero was there. I mean, we just right. had nothing. They, ta- they taught us home ec, which sounds like home economics. It sounds like economics, but no, it was all about sewing and cooking. But yeah, nobody uh, teaches you what your credit card means, what you're getting into, what that APR means, and 
yeah, what you're getting into when you start using that credit card or basically just how to balance your your budget. Your yeah, but if we count on, on parents to be able to teach teach kids and carents, parents are in a uh, web of debt, uh, you know, not expect them to teach much yeah. to their kids other than, hey, you know, you got to survive somehow and you just kind of do what I do. Uh, so I would think well, that, you know, it's a very simple solution. One thing they definitely don't teach is where does money come from. I mean, that's what my book, sure. Web of Debt, was basically about. And people don't realize it. Most people think you look at the dollar bill or you look at your pennies and nickels and you see heads of presidents and you think it all comes right. from the government, but it doesn't. A very small percentage of the money supply comes from the government, 97% comes from banks when they make loans. So they're actually issuing bank credit. It's all electronic. We pretend that it's money, but it's just numbers that are issued by banks. Mm-hmm. So if be- they can do it, we could do it. We, the people, should have our own banks. That's my whole pitch. Mm-hmm. And then the interest would go back to we, the people, and we would save 50% on the cost of all public projects and uh, we could direct credit to our local communities instead of having it go off to Wall Street to speculate in their derivative schemes that actually hurt us or to buy foreign, you know, buy up foreign companies that hurt us because they're competing with our companies. So mm-hmm. we could be in control of our, we could have financial sovereignty by establishing our own state-owned, city-owned, county-owned banks. Okay. Uh, one one last question, kind of on this personal debt side. Uh, a lot of people, I would say, got religion during the Great Recession. They turned to personal debt. Uh, now, do you have a feel for how much of that was learning to manage it more wisely or just pure necessity versus it was just plain old written off through foreclosure, short sale, bankruptcy, those kinds of things? Do you have some feel for how much of it went one way or the other? Um, I haven't seen any numbers, but it does mm-hmm. seem like it is both. Um, actually, all of our money is debt. Virtually all of it is debt. It's created as debt. So the fact that people are paying off their debts is a good thing for them individually, but it means that there's that this money supply has shrunk since mm-hmm. money is created when somebody takes out a loan. So if people pay back their loans and they don't take out new ones, the money supply shrinks. And that's supposedly one reason that the the Fed is doing quantitative easing where they're just pumping money out there. But they're not pumping the money out. That's the problem. It's going on the balance sheets of banks and it doesn't make it into the to the real money supply, the, the money supply that circulates and where we can buy products with it. So I think the solution to all that is they need to get some of that money actually into the real money supply. In other words, do, for example, like Elizabeth Warren saying, the Federal, the Federal Reserve could use their credit power to make very low-interest loans to students, to very low-interest loans to homeowners, very low-interest loans to state and local governments. I mean, we're the victims of the bank's shenanigans, and somehow the banks are the ones that get saved, and we're still the victims. We're paying, we're paying the they get a very low rate, and we're paying a high rate, and they get the spread. That okay, fair point. Changed. Let me come back to that point in just a moment. Let me remind our listeners you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp. It is a real estate fund in the Phoenix and Scottsdale area. If you missed some of the prior shows or you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. 
If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us, and we'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Uh, reminder, during the show, we welcome you, our listeners, to go ahead and ask us some questions or send us some comments. And you can do that in the chat window below the radio player, or you can call in 917-388-4162. Uh, and I'll, that number is also at the top of the screen. Our topic today is Web of Debt. Our guest is Ellen H. Brown author of the book with that name and 11 other books. She's an attorney, founder of the Public Banking Institute, and candidate for the Office of Treasurer of California. Ellen, let's switch now, as you started to, to government debt. And obviously that applies to the U.S. and most other countries around the world. Governments have historically run deficits, and the world hasn't ended. Is this time different? Um, no. In fact, our debt goes all the way back to 1835, and we never paid mm-hmm. a thing off. So I would argue it's not really a debt. It really is our money supply, since all money is created as debt. So I think it was Mariner Eccles was um, chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1940s. He said, if we had no federal debt, we would have no money supply. So you can't really pay it off, and you don't need to pay it off. The danger of the debt is not the debt, the principal part of the debt. In other words, the expenditures that the government mm-hmm. makes. The danger is the interest, because that part does grow exponentially, and that can overwhelm the system. I mean, interest is like a parasite that, um, well, compound interest grows exponentially, just like parasites and cancers, and you can't sustain that forever. So. I think the way to fix that is acknowledge that we're all we're talking about is our money supply. And you could either have the government issue the money outright, which is what the American colonies did in a rather brilliant system, or if you want to call it debt, fine, but borrow from your own central bank and therefore you get the interest back. Ever since the 1960s, the Federal Reserve, kicking and screaming, has rebated their profits to the federal government. Before that, when the Fed was first set up in 1913, they actually collected interest and kept it on the Federal Reserve notes that they printed. But in the 1960s, uh, Wright Patman was head of the House Banking and Currency Committee, and he saw what they were up to, and he said, you boys are printing our money and charging us interest on it. That's not right. You should be nationalized. So avoid to avoid being nationalized, they agreed to return their profits to the to the federal government. So so we should fund and could fund through our own central bank interest free and the whole system would be sustainable. It's that's been done before. Canada did it, New Zealand did it, Australia, France, many countries did it before the nineteen seventies when there was this phenomenon called stagflation that was blamed on the mm-hmm. governments, but it really wasn't the fault of the governments. So I've written all about that's all in my book, The Public Bank Solution. Okay, uh, but on the other hand, uh, let me let me continue to call it debt for now. I mean, we, there was a lot of debt the U.S. ran up during the Civil War, Great Depression, as well as World War II, and somehow it did decrease over time, and it got paid down. Let's call, let me call it that. It wasn't paid off. Uh, what's the government doing or not doing today to to get that debt under control again? Well, they're not paying it down at all, as far as I know. I think they're just they keep rolling it over, and it keeps going up in the that that's one reason they've held interest rate to rock bottom levels is so that 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 portion of the debt won't go up but 
but they still have long-term debt that's at 3.5% or something like that. At 3.5%, your debt doubles in 20 years. So that's still a huge um, a, a huge burden. I think it should all be interest-free at the least. I don't know how they could pay. I mean, how are they going to pay down the debt? What are they going to? The only way you can pay down the debt is to reimpose a very high tax rate on the on the wealthy. And I just don't. The, the problem is that the wealthy own the government, and it's just highly unlikely that they're going to relinquish that control. I think that's why I'm into public banking. That we can't we don't have much influence we have zero influence at the federal level but we can still do things at our state and local level so we can we don't have to uh be slaves to wall street we can set up our own banking system and keep our own interests now i i know the answer to this question since since i know your book a lot more than other listeners would uh, are the fed and other central banks around the world helping in managing this debt or are they part of the problem well, they're definitely part of the problem, but on the other hand, you probably need a central you need a central banking system of some sort. Mm-hmm. But it should be our central banking system. In other words, we the people should have control of it, and we should get the profits from it. Instead, it's this sort of private monster that's that's turned into a parasitic system that's just extracting and exploiting profits away from the people. Well, on the other hand, uh, you know, theoretically, uh, the, the we uh, or our governments are uh, trapped in this web of debt. They continue to spend more than they bring in. Uh, you know, are, uh, that, how do you get out of something like that? I mean, it doesn't sound like handing the, the reins to the government would be the solution since uh, they, they, they spend like uh, drunken sailors, and, and I'm probably offending a lot of sailors. <laughs> Well, yes, for for example, the military, what Costa Rica did um, in 1949, they had a revolution and and they nationalized their banks and there were a couple of coups and so the, so the president just uh, fired the military. So they don't have a military. Just think of how much money we could save if we, if we got rid of our military. But you know that's not going to happen, but that's half mm-hmm. the budget right there and we don't even know what they spend on. We don't get to know because it's all national security so it's all black ops and you know there are huge companies making huge profits off all that so that could be and should be gotten control of but how how are we possibly going to get control of the military they're the most powerful they've got four according to Catherine austin fitz they've got 40 trillion dollars worth of hardware floating around the the world they're not going to relinquish their hold just for some little things like Russia and China dealing in their own currency. You know, these things that are supposedly big threats, like we're going to lose the reserve currency status because they're trading in their own currencies. We're not going to lose. I mean, we've got that so locked up. There's no other currency that could be the reserve currency. Everybody uses the dollar. It's available everywhere. It's cheap for them. And We've got the military to back it up. So, I mean, I don't approve of our system at all, but I just don't see how we, the people, we can bitch about it, but what can we do about it? 
not much of anything, whereas we can affect things at our local level. So that's why I'm always pushing at the local level. At the local level, understand. Now, let's go back to kind of banking is obviously a a key factor in the the banksters as I refer to them. Uh, Glass-Steagall was eliminated a number of years ago. Is that one of the key events that kind of drove this kind of laissez-faire or or, or do what I want and I'm, you know, getting stronger and stronger? Uh, Was was Glass-Steagall one of those uh, kind of seminal events? That was a major, major event where they, or the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was imposed in 1933 to prevent Mm -hmm. the very sort of thing that we have happening now where the banks were gambling with the deposits. So so the law was basically you can gamble if you like, but you're going to have to gamble with your own money. You can't gamble with our money. And then in 1999 they repealed that and said... Well, it was supposedly it was to nurture this fledgling uh, derivatives industry that that our banks needed to be able to play the derivatives game in order to compete with foreign banks. Okay. So you know this fledgling little industry, which is now one and a half quadrillion dollars, like right. the biggest right. biggest financial monster in the, in the world. Um, well, officially, something like $700 billion, which is 10 times the gross domestic product of all the countries in the world combined. Mm-hmm. Interest mm-hmm. rate swaps alone are $400 trillion, which, and we're the victims of all that. I mean, state and local governments and universities, the students are the victims of the, all that. That's why their, their tuition is going up to cover these fraudulent interest rate swaps. So we have now we have... 16 of the world's largest banks have been caught manipulating the LIBOR rate, which is the right. the interest rate or the uh, benchmark rate at which they set these interest rate swaps, which are a $400 trillion business. So the whole thing is fraudulent. And Eric Holder says they're too big to jail. They're too big to prosecute, so we just have mm-hmm. to let them get away with it. It's shocking. But what we can do, it seems to me, the FDIC just, Sued, just filed a big lawsuit against all 16 banks for fraud and breach of contract in these interest rate swaps. So hmm. I think all the state and local governments should follow suit. They, there have been suits before for antitrust, uh, Sherman antitrust violations and RICO violations, but they were all consolidated under one judge in New York, and she said, well, it's not really anti-competitive because they're not really competing with each other. They're cooperating with each other. Well, yeah, they're they're colluding with each other to compete with everybody else. But anyway, that's the way she ruled, and so that was the end of those mm-hmm. lawsuits. But fraud <laughs> and breach of contract are simple civil, you know, simple claims that you can bring in state court. So okay. I think the UC, the University of California system, for one, should bring those. The, the, just the exact same lawsuits. You can, if you get a, an outraged jury, they can give punitive damages that are like ten times the real damages. I mean, you could get some serious damages out of a claim, claims like that. But it's just that here we have these powerful bullies that we think we can't do anything about because they're too big to be prosecuted, too big to fail. And the next thing coming down the pike are the bail-ins, where they're actually literally going to take our deposits. Not only have they commingled yes. our deposits with their with their derivatives bets, but when they find that they're insolvent, they are required under 
Dodd-Frank, and in Europe the, there's a banking union that just became mm-hmm. law as of March where they're required to take their depositors' money and turn that into equity to recapitalize themselves. Very key point. I want to make sure, and, and, and for those of you that may not have listened carefully, go back to the archive and listen to that point. Very, very key point. Now, I'm 100% in agreement with you that, that, that repealing Glass-Steagall uh, was dumb, but now the government seems to have been kind of trying to make up for some of Glass-Steagall by putting uh, in this Dodd-Frank bill. What are your thoughts on Dodd-Frank? Well, it did not solve – it was supposedly there to prevent further um, – crises like what we had in 2008 and so President Obama said now with Dodd-Frank we will have no more bailouts but the way that it prevented bailouts was that it said we the taxpayers are not going to be responsible for bailing you out in other words they didn't fix the problem at all they didn't address why the thing collapsed in 2008 they just said we're not going to bail you out next time and but instead they didn't say but you banks get to go and go bankrupt what they said is you'll have to figure out how to save yourselves and here's what we here's the plan here's how you will save yourselves and that is basically bail-ins where you're, the the big banks are suppo- are required to take their creditors money well it turns out the creditors are the shareholders the bondholders right and the depositors, and the biggest class of creditor of any bank are their depositors. So J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, has over $70 trillion in derivatives, over a trillion dollars in deposits. Bank of America also has over $70 trillion in derivatives and over a trillion dollars in deposits. And under the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005, derivatives claimants go first in bankruptcy. So they're going to snatch up all the collateral. There's not going to be anything left for the depositors. And the FDIC fund has $47 billion in it to insure $4.5 trillion of deposits. So they're not going to have a leg to stand in either. Exactly. For those people that that might be uh, arguing against you, I guess they should take a look at uh, Cyprus as uh, you know the first example, I guess, almost test case of this concept of uh, confiscating depositors' money in order to uh, to bail out banks. So if if, if somebody is questioning the the uh, one of those, oh, it'll never happen here, kind of a thing, um, is already happening. So they, they they need to take this to heart. Uh, let me continue with this Glass Steagall. It was not 39 pages long, as I recall might have been 37 uh and instead of putting that back in place they put in dot frank and as you said that doesn't solve it and, and dot frank is now 60 percent written thirty-five thousand pages to date and they've got another 40 percent to go what are your thoughts right well and just the fact that it's so long is a clue that it's not the answer i mean why did they make it so long because there's exceptions for all the big boys they all they have exclusions um so you know it's fraudulent. The, a, a real law that would really fix things would be short and transparent and understandable. Right. So, yeah. I, I to- totally agree with you. And, and you can't even read the thing, let alone right. uh, let alone understand it. <laughs> By the time you do read it, of course, it'll have been amended, and, and you'd have to go back and read it again. Now, Ellen, your book, uh, Web of Debt, includes an incredible amount of information, and obviously we're touching on some of that today. Uh, a lot of which I think uh, a lot of you know most of our listeners and really everybody should understand 
about the banking system. What are some of the key aspects readers have commented on the most that surprised them or that they weren't aware of or, or maybe even bankers, and, and I know even the lead to your book uh, had mentioned as a banker he was not aware of some of these things. What are some of the you know three or four key things that you've heard back that uh, surprised people? Well, I think most people... Everybody is surprised to learn that banks create our money, that it's not created by the government. And many people said that this should be taught in school. Why Why aren't we taught this? Why This should be basic history. And, in fact, I think that's why it's been so interesting for people and for me that we never learned this in school. It's, it's like an alternative history of money, which actually makes sense because what we mm-hmm. did learn is so you get a sense of economics is a class you could take, but you think, well, I don't really want to take that. It's so boring, and it's you know it's dry formulas or something. And but actually, banking, where our money comes from, and how banking works is a subject that they don't even touch in high school or college unless you really specialize. My son has Agreed. a. Um, he has a master's degree in economics. He almost got his Ph.D., and he was quite, t- well, he got it and went into this narrow specialty of econometrics and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just burned out on it because he decided it was too, <laughs> too remote to be of interest. And I said, oh, I know some great subjects, you know, you could write on banking and stuff. He said, Mom, I didn't take banking. Like, you could go oh, all the way through and get a Ph.D. in economics and not have studied banking, how banking works, wow. where our money comes from. It's as if they intentionally don't want you to know, and they want you to think that it's something complicated that you have to leave for the experts, and you really don't want to know because it's too too complicated. It's like you take for granted how your TV works, but you don't really have to know how a TV works or how a computer works. It's something that mm-hmm. only the specialists know. But banking is actually very simple. They just don't tell us. They're hiding it from us. Okay. The uh, now, despite what appears to be a mountain of debt, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to I want to kind of get into a little bit of of numbers so our listeners can appreciate this. Uh, let's talk about bank reserves. You know, historically, banks have kept just enough reserves as as was required. So, if you looked at excess reserves, you could call them zero plus or minus a dollar. Uh, but since two thousand eight, excess reserves have risen and essentially skyrocketed to $2.6 trillion in excess to what they need to carry on their books. Why are the banksters sitting on all that money? Well, they, technically, they don't have a choice. I mean, they they make, they make use those when, when a creditworthy borrower takes out a loan. Mm-hmm. So their argument is that they don't have creditworthy borrowers that are, that are taking out those loans. But in fact... They are using those excess reserves. That they're based, they, what they do is they buy up something like federal securities with them, some, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some very secure form of collateral, and then they're using that as collateral in the repo market, which is the shadow banking system. Now, that is complicated and obscure, mm-hmm. and nobody really – you can't tell what's going on because it's literally in the shadows. It's not reported. Um, but the the repo market is where – it's an alternative to the conventional banking system. Mm-hmm. You know, the conventional banking system only guarantees deposits up to $250,000. So you have a lot of big entities like big pension funds 
that have more than $250,000, and they want a secure place to put their money. And so they don't put it in a bank. They put it in the the repo market where Mm -hmm. it's actually a purchase and sale. So they get the collateral in exchange for their money, but they they trade it every day. Like they roll it. These are Mm -hmm. short-term, one-day loans. So they can. They've always got. If the if the shadow bank goes bankrupt, they've got the collateral, and, right. but they get their money the next. They can always get their money the next day as long as the the thing is solvent. But but they make these. They rehypothecate. They can they can lend that collateral several times over, and they're so the banks are using that as a form of cash for themselves, and then they use that cash to speculate. So they're buying up ports and bridges and businesses of all sorts. I mean, things that you wouldn't think banks would even be allowed to do now because of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, they're into all kinds of speculative ventures. They buy up um, oil, and they have these oil tankers sitting off the coast to to manipulate the price, you know, to let the release these or different um, like copper or different types of metals that they they can hold them on ships until mm-hmm. it's the right time to release them where they can get the best price for it. So they're manipulating markets with all this, with money that they have borrowed using these excess reserves that they got from the Federal Reserve in exchange for their mortgage-backed securities, which were actually toxic which they wouldn't otherwise have been able to unload. So they're they're making out like bandits several different ways, and it's not immediately obvious how they're doing it. So nobody can point a finger and say, you all are bandits. But you have to really dig deep to find all that. Let me remind our listeners that uh, maybe just tuned in. You're listening to the Wealth in a Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can find it on the archive. And you also can find prior shows there www.wealthdna.us. Today our guest is Ellen H. Brown, and our topic is Web of Debt. We're focusing on two of her books, Web of Debt and a sequel, The Public Banking Solution. Ellen Brown is also an attorney, founder of the Public Banking Institute, and candidate for the Office of Treasurer of California. Let me come back to this reserve comment for, or, or, or discussion we were just having. What are the current reserve requirements today? There's, as I recall, there's somewhere around 12% or something like that that the bank needs to keep of their their uh, uh, their loans they're making. There's somewhere around 12%, correct? Well, the reserve requirement is different. I think you're thinking of the capital requirement, which used to be 10%. Now they they pushed it. I mean, under Basel III, they're raising okay. everything. Um, so capital is their their own money, or right, what they okay. they acquire that capital is that every time they make interest that goes into their capital capital account, and the big banks have plenty of capital, and the little banks are getting squeezed by Basel III, which is raising the capital requirement. And it's, it wasn't it was never the little banks' fault in the first place that things collapsed. So again, they're they're also victim, victims along with everyone else. That's one thing that a uh, in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota partners with their small banks and helps them with capital requirements, and that's one reason they haven't lost a single bank, whereas across the country I think a 1,000 banks have been either gone bankrupt or been bought up by the bigger banks. Um, and then the reserve requirement is mm-hmm. theoretically, it used to be 10% on average for your average bank, but for the, the it varies and really the reserve requirement is sort of 
irrelevant today because they can borrow the reserves. So, so they just make the if they get a creditworthy borrower, they make the loan. Uh, but the big banks just really aren't interested in local loans anymore. It's not worth their while. They'd rather be speculating. So it's the same cost to them, you know, to make a a billion dollar loan to a hedge fund as to make a ten thousand dollar loan to a small business, small local business that might fail. So they just don't bother with the small local businesses. They say they, um, you know, that the, the small local businesses are used to have credit lines with the banks, and now they're reduced to credit cards, which doubles their interest rate. And it's not that anything has changed in the local businesses. It's just that the banks have gotten more picky about what they consider to consider a good credit risk. Yeah, and I think you just answered kind of what I was going to get at. But let me let me just kind of maybe pose that question so that uh, we we clarify for some of our our listeners uh, with a reserve requirement. In essence, uh, this whole fractional uh, reserve requirement idea. Uh, if they're sitting on two point six trillion dollars, they in essence could be making somewhere to the tune of of uh, eighteen or twenty trillion dollars in loans uh, and what you're saying they really aren't interested in doing that no pun intended on the word interest but uh, <laughs> they, they really you know would rather be doing some other other stuff on the side which uh, either they perceive as safer or they can do it more in bulk and they don't have to play around with small loans uh, so they really aren't interested in uh, in lending even though that's the factor that would uh, help the economy grow yeah, agreed. And they and they say it's because they don't have creditworthy borrowers that their businesses have gotten shakier and stuff. And it's true that the requirements have gone up because of Basel III. I mean, they've got they do have the small small banks are all complaining that they've got regulators breathing down their mm-hmm. neck. And it's the small banks that actually want to make loans into the local community. But and the big banks just really aren't interested. They're the ones that are able but uninterested. Correct, and of course, Dodd Frank, which we talked about, is not going to help much. While we have the uh, Dodd Frank police going to be running around and wanting to also uh, probably go into every bank and check on what loans they've made and whether they followed the seventy nine thousandth chapter point number twenty two billion twelve hundred three. So yeah, no, I I I do worry about all of those things um, going. So okay, let's go back to the kind of the central point of of the public bank solution, the so what question. We know there's a lot of debt. Uh, we know that the uh, banks are not doing what they should be doing, a lot of different factors. Uh, so, you know, when I ask the question, so what can be done to solve it, it sounds like your answer is this public banking solution. Um, try explaining that to, to a novice. What is the public banking solution? Well, if we own the bank, it's where we, the people, own the bank. So we have one example, as I said, the Bank of North Dakota. But globally, 40% of banks globally are publicly owned. In fact, other countries, people write to me from other countries, and they say, seriously, you don't have any public banks, or you don't have a public postal bank? Every country virtually has a postal bank, but we don't. Um, So that's where the the model that I would like to see set up here in California would be that the – the state of California would have its own bank. Instead of farming its deposits and its investments out to Wall Street, which has not done us well with all that, we could be keeping that money ourselves, leveraging it into credit for our own state purposes. For example, um, we pay 
double. When you when you fund something through a bond issue, you you double the cost of the infrastructure project. So, for example, the Bay Bridge retrofit was six billion dollars. When you add interest and fees, it was twelve billion. The first mm-hmm. leg of the uh, bullet train from San Francisco to Los Angeles is supposed to be ten billion, but when you add interest and fees, it'll be nineteen point five billion. The Delta water tunnels are supposed to be $25 billion, but when you add interest and fees, it will be $51 billion or more. Meanwhile, the Chinese have built 4,000 miles of high-speed rail in the last five years. How do, they, how do they pull it off when we're having so much trouble with it? It's because they own their banks, and they, so they, save, they get the, all this stuff for half the cost that we pay because they don't have to pay interest. They keep the interest. They get it all back. They get the interest and fees back. Or I'm not sure how they design their loans, but they don't even Mm -hmm. need to charge interest because they are the bank. The state and the bank are the same thing. So if we allowed our state to go into business, we, the taxpayers, wouldn't have to pay so much in the way of taxes. In other words, let them earn some money themselves. Let them be banks that earn interest and we would it would be a huge savings to us the taxpayers and we would keep our deposits safe they wouldn't be snatched up in a bail-in by when jp morgan goes bankrupt and we would be able to aim the credit to our local community for the purposes needed by the community rather than the purposes of wall street all right, but let me continue using some of the some of the words you used, and obviously trying to to get at some of the nuances. Uh, when we say we the people own the banks, well, uh, I happen to to the fund I run uh, does its banking at Wells Fargo. Not trying to put a plug in for them, just kind of use them as an example. And if I chose that that I thought that was a good investment, I can buy shares in and therefore be a part owner of Wells Fargo. How is that different than uh, a public bank? Well, the difference is that we, the taxpayers, are funding all the things that government does, and if government had its own bank, it would get those things much more cheaply, and we, the taxpayers, wouldn't have to pay pay that. I mean, most people don't buy shares in Wells Fargo, and even if you did buy shares in Wells Fargo, if, there's, if it goes bankrupt, they're going to take the shares. That's, sure, sure, that's exactly. What the new no, bail-in that, that's thing the risk is. of owning so, something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand. But is, is that, in essence, nationalizing the banks? Uh, no. Or putting them under mean, state control, whether it's national or state control. Isn't that a, isn't that a form of nationalizing oh, with, where the government takes it over? State, um, you could say that, but, but half of our economy is government-owned. It, it, it's all economies are that way. It's just a question of what you put in the private sector and what you put in the public sector. So it seems to me that banking should go in the public sector, just like water and power, all those infrastructure things that we all share. We are paying the burden on it. I mean, we just had to bail out the banks. We, the people, paid huge amounts of money to bail out these banks, and they get to keep the profits. Why is that fair? If we're going to pay the losses, we should get to keep profits as well. So that's what we're talking about here. 
understand but at the same time I, I look at most government run organizations and of course in the in the uh, news in the, the recent past we can talk about let's say the controversy on uh, in the US on the Veterans Administration the post office is is constantly uh, over budget and, and, and running a deficit uh, Obamacare rollout which has been um, you know less than stellar uh, and, the, and the government's ability to, to manage a budget are all kind of counterexamples of putting organizations in the hands of the government uh, so help me understand why that should the banking sector uh, should go into the hands of people that don't seem to manage big organizations very well well for one thing we're not talking about politicians running the bank in North Dakota which is our only example mm-hmm. they, they, we know we have a banker on our a retired North Dakota banker on our advisory committee and he said mm-hmm. we make it very clear we are bankers we are not politicians we do not allow the you know the politicians don't interfere with our business decisions we make good conservative investment decisions based on our experience as bankers so that's what they do they hire the best bankers around and they do conservative banking but the difference is that they don't get bonuses fees commissions for there's no incentive to speculate because they don't make any profit off of speculating they they do old-fashioned banking, and their mandate is to serve the public interest, and that's what they do, and they get promoted for doing a good job of it. So they act as if Glass-Steagall were still in place, in essence. Yeah. Well, now the the the, the counterexample of you know, North North Dakota, and and you know, let's let's hope that model is a very good one to follow. But, it, but most of it, our listeners will sure. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And North Dakota is an extremely conservative state, which just shows oh, that they're not. They're not doing, you know, it's not a socialist engine. It's a sovereignty engine. It's keep our money in the state for our people. We do not want to be lackeys to Wall Street. But on the other hand, North Dakota also has a uh, oil-based boom going on that, uh, you know, yes, they didn't lose money, but it's also one of the states that the economy has been growing no matter what just because of this oil boom. So could there be other external factors that, uh, you know, people will point to to say, hey, that that public banking uh, solution, you know, it really hasn't been tested there. Let's put it into Detroit and see if it works. Yeah, well, agreed. That's why I wrote the public bank solution because that objection came up that they had oil. But first of all, there are other states that have oil, equal amount of oil, and they're not doing mm-hmm. nearly as well. But also, globally, 40% of banks are publicly owned. These are largely mm-hmm. in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, all of which escaped the credit crisis. They've mm-hmm. um, China and Korea, and they've grown by 10% a year for the last 30 years. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable the pace at which they've grown. And how do they do it? They do not have a parasitic banking se- sector that is sucking their profits out. Their banks actually support their local economy. That's their mandate. They're there to, to in fact, they support their local businesses against our businesses. If we want to compete with their businesses, we really mm-hmm. need a banking system that supports our businesses. No, I think you support it well. Before I forget, let's get your websites uh, out again to our listeners uh, in case they didn't uh, write them down at the time. Uh, first one is, of course, uh, ellenbrown.com, which is your blog and, and, and hundreds of articles out there. Uh, what's the one for public banking again? Publicbankinginstitute.org. Correct. Important to remember the ORG. Uh, your treasurer website is also an important yep. one. 
<laughs> Thank you. Ellen Brown for Treasure Number Four dot O R G. Okay. And we've covered a lot of information today, Ellen. What additional comments or key points would you like to share with our listeners? Um, I think that covers it pretty well. Um I hope you might consider buying my books, The Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, where I've laid this all out in detail. I know it's complicated and it's hard to get across in an interview. Oh, massive amount of information. I will I will mention it before I close off completely. But thank you for joining us today, uh, Ellen, and I certainly hope that even when you're in elected office, you'll be willing to join us again. <laughs> okay, thanks, Ron. Or even and, if you're not the- elected. All, okay. all the best in this in this campaign. It's it's refreshing and almost unprecedented that we'd have somebody that knows so much about banking uh, being uh, in a public office. I, I didn't think it was allowed to have competent people in public office. <laughs> well, and I'm not sure that's going to happen. So, thank you. <laughs> Understand. Understand. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Ellen, for joining <laughs> thank us. Thank you. Bye. I think a great way to summarize the comments you heard today is to share a passage from the Web of Debt that captures the essence of what's facing the U.S. and other countries. John Adams, and we're talking now uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, said there are two ways to conquer or enslave a nation. One is by the sword. The other is by debt. The latter mentioned method is stealth enough so people don't know what's happening and submit it and submit to their own bondage. And in the words of the famous philosopher Yogi Berra, it feels like deja vu all over again. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with Ellen Brown's assessment on government debt, and I certainly encourage you to get to know her extensive research putting together this very comprehensive book. On the other hand, the idea of expanding the role of government as a solution to the problem of uncontrolled government budgets Well, that appears a little bit like electing convicted serial killer Charles Manson as sheriff. Somehow this idea feels like the liberal philosophy of having a larger central government take care of us since we're not capable of taking care of ourselves. And I have trouble with that concept. We've seen the ongoing shrinkage of large corporate entities and economic growth being driven by creative and entrepreneurial entities. Why should we think that a large government or more government role would be more effective than decentralized government or smaller government? Now, in Ellen Brown's defense, I have to agree there is irrefutable uh, evidence that some of the large banks and the banksters wield too much control of the economy. A very clear example is one we talked about today. Since 2008, the governments have been trying to expand the money supply by uncontrollably printing money to help the business survive and even encourage them to thrive during the Great Recession. While the banks have taken that cheap money and in essence put it in their vaults and been earning money on it. They earn money on those extra reserves higher than what they pay to take the money from the Federal Reserve. Does that sound like OPM to you? It does to me. Now, as a business person, I see that as a logical thing to do, but the government, through the Fed, just kept printing money and not reviewing their own data, which shows that money is not flowing into the economy. Should we fault the banker whose, whose mission is to make money for their shareholders, or should we blame the government for trying to interfere with the normal and healthy economic cycles? So yes, I do agree with Ellen that banksters have too much influence on the world economy, but I don't believe the answer is nationalizing or putting into the government sector the banking uh, control and expanding our government. Uh, To end on an encouraging word, though, it's very refreshing 
I even use the term unprecedented to see someone who is so well-versed and educated on the banking system running for public office to manage the state treasury. Maybe a few years dealing with government bureaucrats and banksters directly will help her devise an even better solution. At the same time, California would be a great place to test out this public banking solution. They certainly are caught up in a major web of debt. During our last show, I mentioned two market indicators that could be indicating a market top. One of those is the level of margin debt, which has been rising exponentially since 2009. It had a slight dip in March, and I mentioned that it would be wise to follow that indicator. And I have an update for you. The level of margin debt decreased again when the New York Stock Exchange published April's data a few days ago. But this indicator successfully predicted the last two major downturns. When there was a downturn in the uh, uh, margin debt, we in essence saw the markets decline big time. We're talking 2009 and 2007. So uh, if we continue to see declines in that margin debt, it might be a good indicator that uh, you should be doing what I've been saying. Taking profits and putting hedges in places now would be a good idea. Regular listeners of the Wealth DNA Radio Show know that our goal here is to help one million people become millionaires. So one of the best ways to increase your wealth is to tune into this show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas to help diversify and grow your portfolio. And occasionally we will inform you of some of the proposals on the horizon that could affect your wealth accumulation and your ability to live the American dream. And maybe one of those tips you heard today is to keep your money out of deposits at banks. Many thanks to the BI Solutions Corp for sponsoring today's show. They are a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. The next Wealth DNA radio show will be the second Monday of May, Monday, June 9th, 9 a.m. Arizona, same place, same time. Our guest will be Lynn Rowe. We'll be talking about a very important topic. Let me even say one of the most critical topics that could affect your financial future and standard of living long-term care. As usual, we provide the uh, lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have some comments, suggestions, additional questions on today's topic, or you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, just send an email to ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and reviewing your own family's debt. Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.